And welcome to episode 37 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the New Zealand-based podcast that covers all kinds of issues in philosophy and theology and social issues, politics and whatever else happens to distract me. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Well, this week we're talking about classical liberalism. This week? We don't do this weekly. Classical liberalism and natural law. Natural law is a really big subject. and In fact, you could spend an entire semester or even a year Uh, doing just one paper on natural law at college, and you'd still only be a beginner in the subject, such is the complexity that this has as a field of inquiry. So I make no pretenses here of being able to offer any more than just a small sample of that subject area today. So I've had to be very selective with what I include. I'm going to look at natural law theory as it contributes to a classical liberal political outlook. Now, in the classical liberal tradition, that is the uh, political philosophy, the the tradition of political philosophy that includes people like Milton, Locke, Hobbes, and so on. What were people talking about when they spoke of natural law? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's my view, and I actually think it's a, a pretty simple fact, that the classical liberal tradition rested on some pretty important religious assumptions as exhibited in the use of natural law theory as we find it in the great classical liberal writers. Now, not everyone shares this view of mine. Some have claimed that there is a purely secular view of natural law that requires no religious grounding whatsoever, and that the classical liberal tradition should be construed as advocating this view. Well, I don't think so. The classical liberal democratic tradition of natural law is one with important religious presuppositions, and that's what this episode is about. Now, before we get started... You're unbelievable! Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks, but where can you hear the arguments of your favourite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative if we can't agree on what the text was. Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God, do you mean God when you say I agency? God, is a, God, I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness, and life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to cutting-edge apologetics debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. Now, I had wanted to say, before we get started, a word from our sponsors, but of course, I don't have any sponsors. Let's get started now. There is a historical claim that I am examining today, 
And the historical claim is that there are basically two kinds of natural law that you find in classical liberalism. Vernon Burke uh, was reflecting on Thomas Aquinas' use of natural law, and he claimed that it provides evidence of, quote, two radically different meanings for natural law, end quote, in Thomas Aquinas. Henry Veach likewise says that these two radically different models present one view where the meaning of natural law is, quote, theological in origin, see, in origin, like where it comes from, while the other concept is one where natural law is, quote, based on the natural light of unaided human reason, end quote. Now, Veach says of these two conflicting views of natural law, and I quote, In the one sense, natural laws are to be understood as scarcely natural at all, inasmuch as they represent no more than certain absolute prescriptions and prohibitions, which, so far from being rationally discoverable by human reason and nature, are simply decreed by God. In the other sense, natural laws are thought of as being none other than such rules of intelligent conduct and behavior as any knowledgeable person ought to be able to see are demanded by the very nature of the case when it comes to the living of our lives. So what Burke appears to be saying here, Burke and Veach for that matter, is that anyone who holds the second view of natural law is endorsing a more secular version of natural law and there are degrees of secularity across the continuum among those who hold this view. Now, I want to say that it's actually not good enough to simply point out that there are people who agree that we can know what natural law requires by using reason, and then to conclude that therefore there is a version of natural law that can survive without God, without religious beliefs. Acknowledging that people can, by using their reason, know what natural law requires, is very different from saying that natural law is based on human reason. The real conceptual divide is one that is a divide among people who grant that natural law can be known through reason. On the one hand, we have those who, ha who believe that this law has its origin in God, and on the other, there are those who apparently, with Veach, believe that this law exists and God has nothing to do with it. It's simply based on reason. God may exist, he may not, but he's got nothing to do with natural law. This is a historical claim about classical liberalism. The claim isn't just that there may have at some time been a concept of natural law held by some people that did not depend on any theological postulates, although there are plenty of issues to con you know, connected to that claim that, that should be addressed in any comprehensive treatment of natural law. Instead, this is an argument that the political liberalism that we are familiar with in, in the West has drawn on these secular concepts of natural law. Now, just at the outset, I'd say that the first impression one gets as we browse classical liberalism's hall of fame is that this secular, godless tradition of natural law, if it exists, is a highly elusive tradition to find. There's really no graceful way to move into the substance of what I'm going to be talking about here. So let me just lay my cards on the table and tell you what I'm going to be doing. Basically, I'll be looking at a laundry list of the biggest movers and shakers in the classical liberal tradition who made the appeal to natural law. Now, given time constraints, of course, I'm going to miss out some, but there will be enough here to paint a, a pretty informative picture. In order to realize the significance of each example, it would help to know something about the history of political thought, but even if you don't, hopefully you'll still get the idea. 
So the first name on our list, the first name on our hit list today is Richard Hooker. Now, Richard Hooker was actually an Anglican priest and a theologian, but he made major contributions to political philosophy and in historical treatments of political thought in the 17th century, Hooker is always included because of his importance. Now, A. Woodhouse, A. Wood, I only know him as A. Woodhouse. I've tried to find this guy's first name, but I can't. So A. Woodhouse sums up Hooker's stance on natural and positive laws. Mr. Woodhouse says, and I quote, actually, could be a Mrs. or Ms. Woodhouse. Doesn't give the first name. Woodhouse says, and I quote, in the law of nature, there can be, of course, nothing arbitrary. It owes its origin not simply to the divine will, but to the divine nature. It is recognizable by human reason, and that part of natural law which applies peculiarly to man and, de- and demands his cooperation, Hooker significantly calls the law of reason. As for positive law, as distinguished from natural, the divine law, positive, can no more than the natural law contradict the nature of its author. Those positive laws, on the other hand, instituted by fallen and fallible men, may indeed contradict man's rational nature and spring less from reason than from arbitrary will. But, though the opinion of their doing so does not release from the obligation of obedience, all such positive laws are subject to review by reason and in the light of the standard supplied by the law of nature, and may be, by legal and orderly process, revised or rescinded. So that's Mr. Mrs. or Mrs. Woodhouse summary of Richard Hooker's stance on natural law. So in a nutshell, man's laws may be subject to review in order to make them conform better to God's law, reflected in the law of nature, which we can apprehend with our mind. It's not difficult to confirm that this is a fair summary of Hooker's view of natural law. On the one hand, Hooker uses the term to refer to the natural behavior of the universe in the sense of its manifesting laws of science, regularity of properties, and so forth. In speaking of the law of nature, he says, and I quote, we sometimes mean that manner of working which God hath set creating, sorry, which God hath set for each created thing to keep such as the heavens and the elements of the world, which can do no otherwise than they do, end quote. Hooker says of this type of natural law, quoting again, those laws are investigable by reason, without the help of revelation, supernatural and divine, end quote. That is, revelation via scripture or the church is not necessary in order to investigate and discover laws of science. But like other classical liberal writers, Hooker construes natural law to include more than just the natural workings of the universe. He explains that the law of nature applies also to human reason and to morality. He cites what is evidently a widely used phrase, drawing on St. Augustine and on Aquinas, saying that, I quote, whatsoever is done amiss, the law of nature and reason thereby is transgressed. And he affirms this claim. He says, and I quote, Because even those offences, which are by their special qualities breaches of supernatural laws, do also, for that they are generally evil, violate in general that principle of reason which willeth universally to fly from evil. Yet do we not therefore so far extend the law of reason as to contain in it all manner of laws whereunto reasonable creatures are bound, but, 
as hath been showed, we restrain it to those only duties which all men by force of natural wit either do or might understand to be such duties as concern all men. Now, let me translate some of this. In the context of his discussion of ecclesiastical polity, that's the name of his book on ecclesiastical polity, what this means is that even if a practice is condemned by the church as a violation of a specific commandment, it is wrong by virtue of the fact that it violates natural law, which teaches all of us to abstain from evil. Interestingly, however, Hooker here says that while the natural law tells us to free from evil, the natural law does not tell us everything that is evil. It only tells us the most basic principles that all of us should know. He does make it clear, however, that the basics actually contain quite a lot, saying of the law of reason, which is a subset of the natural law, that, quote, there are in it some things which stand as principles universally agreed upon, and that of those principles which are in themselves evident, the greatest moral duties we owe towards God or man may be, without any great difficulty, concluded. Hooker turns then to the question of why so many people have been ignorant of what counts as sin if the law of nature and reason is supposedly so evident to everyone. He says, and I quote, If then it be here demanded by what means it should come to pass, the greatest part of the law moral being so easy for all men to know, he calls it the law moral, I didn't get that wrong, that so many thousands of men, notwithstanding, have been ignorant even of principal moral duties, not imagining the breach of them to be sin. I deny not, but lewd and wicked custom, beginning perhaps at the first among few, afterwards spreading into greater multitudes, and so continuing from time to time, may be of force even in plain things to smother the light of natural understanding, because men will not bend their wits to examine whether things wherewith they have been accustomed be good or evil. For example's sake, that grosser kind of heathenish idolatry, whereby they worshipped the very works of their own hands, was an absurdity so palpable that the prophet David, comparing idols and idolaters together, maketh almost no odds between them, but the one in a manner as much without wit and sense as the other. And he quotes David now, They that make them are like unto them, and so are all that trust in them. End quote. So, for Richard Hooker, there was no question as to the origin of natural law or what it requires. In fact, he expressly endorses the biblical claim that even in the absence of the teaching of the written law, that is, the Bible, we may still know in a basic sense what God requires of us because God makes it known to us all. And I'm quoting again, Men do both accuse and approve themselves, as the apostle teacheth. Yea, those men which have no written law of God to show what is good or evil, carry written in their hearts the universal law of mankind, the law of reason, whereby they judge as by a rule which God hath given unto all men for that purpose. The law of reason doth somewhat direct men how to honour God as their creator, but how to glorify God in such sort as, as, is to, as is required to the end he may be an everlasting saviour. This we are taught by divine law, which law both ascertaineth the truth 
and supplieth unto us the want of that other law. So natural law tells us what is right and what is wrong. Divine law, which in this context means the teaching of God delivered through salvation history and ultimately through the church, tells us both that the other law is just and how to seek a remedy for our shortcomings in obeying the law of nature. Elsewhere, Hooker again affirms that the law of nature reveals, even to natural men, the law of God. Now, in in Christian terminology, the natural man is the person who is not a Christian. While there are admittedly times when Hooker speaks of the law of nature on the one hand and the law of God on the other, it's clear enough that he does not mean by this that the law of nature is not God's law. Rather, he means to distinguish between positive commands in Scripture and unwritten law in nature. He refers at one point to certain people, quote, by whom both the natural law of God was disobeyed and the mysteries of supernatural truth derided, end quote, as a way of saying that they violated natural law and scripture. So Woodhouse's summary was correct. As far as Hooker was concerned, the law of nature constitutes natural revelation, wherein God shows us what he requires of us, even if not to the fullest extent. Now, in a way, this view of natural moral law can be seen as a subset of scientific law if it is construed in terms of the way that things are and were meant by God to be. Perhaps the most, moving on now from Richard Hooker, perhaps the most significant name in the history of classical liberalism, however, is that of John Locke. Even among non-religious lovers of the classical liberal tradition, and even some libertarians, which John Locke certainly was not, Locke is still regarded as something of a real hero. And in fact, the writings of John Locke, more than any other person, influenced the content of the American Constitution. Now, John Locke's understanding of the law of nature is quite unambiguous. It's not something generated by reason, nor is it something arrived at by consensus or cooperative deliberation. It is objective, that is, it is out there in the world of facts. Reason, when it is at its best, serves as what John Locke calls the candle of the Lord, the gift of God enabling us to illuminate those truths of the law of nature that are there to be found. The law of nature, for John Locke, is something that has its origin in the will of God, reflecting the teleological nature of creation, having been made for a purpose and with a proper function, which is constitutive constitutive of the basis of moral law. John Locke says, and I quote, This law of nature can be described as being the decree of the divine will, discernible by the light of nature and indicating what is and what is not in conformity with rational nature, and for this very reason commanding or prohibiting. It seems to me less correctly termed by some the dictate of reason, since reason does not so much establish and pronounce this law of nature as search for it and discover it as a law enacted by a superior power and implanted in our hearts. Now, it's noteworthy that Locke cautions against the terminology that might be used in calling natural law the dictate of reason. Since reason does not generate, it does not dictate natural law, but rather reason discovers natural law as part of the world that we live in. 
Now, this attitude of Locke to the relationship between reason and natural law is lost on many contemporary liberal admirers of Locke's legacy. Stephen Ford says in passing, as though everyone's just going to agree with him, he says, Morality, Locke says repeatedly, is grounded in natural law. This law is the law of reason or reason itself. No, it's not reason itself. John Locke went out of his way to say, hey, look, it's not reason itself. Reason discovers natural law. It is not identical with it. It does not create it. After saying this, uh, Stephen Ford lists a number of references to John Locke. In the first treatise, he quotes, or he doesn't quote, he just references uh, paragraph 101. In the second treatise, he references paragraph 56, paragraph 11, paragraph 181. Now, I've checked all those paragraphs, and while John Locke does mention the law of nature in these paragraphs, he says nothing about it being uh, the law of reason or reason itself. In fact, we know full well that John Locke says that that's not what natural law is. So I'll just I'll leave John Locke there because I think he's such a clear-cut case. I'll move on to Algernon Sidney. Algernon Sidney was a, also a 17th century English politician, Republican, political theorist, colonel, and he was an opponent of King Charles II of England. In fact, he was so much an opponent that he became involved in a plot against the king and he eventually got executed for treason. So it did not end well for Elgin on Sydney, but he had some good ideas. In Sydney's masterwork, Discourses Concerning Government, the phrase law of God almost never occurs without adding the words and nature, you know, the law of God and nature, showing that for Sydney, the law of God is the law of God and nature. And there is no point where one ends and the other begins. It's one law, one set of law. Where he does refer to them separately, it's clear that he does not do so to suggest that their content is different or that the law of nature does not directly depend on God for its content. As in the case where he condemns certain actions as, quote, as being, sorry, quote, not according to the law of God nor to the law of nature, which cannot differ from it. So anytime he mentions them separately, it's still clear that he believes they are the same thing. They have the same content. The law of nature cannot, he says, differ from the law of God. Now you'll notice that I'm kind of rushing a little bit. I don't want to dwell too long on, on any one figure except the ones that I really like. And that's just because I want to give you the, the idea that this is a really widespread phenomenon across a large number of figures. So let's look next at Montesquieu. Now I've never actually heard his name pronounced. That could be completely wrong. But we're going to look at Montesquieu. Um, contemporary writer Michael Zuckert claims that in Montesquieu, just like in Locke, according to him, the ultimate standard of right and the bedrock of political morality is not in the natural law at all, but rather in the fact of self-ownership. In fact, he goes so far as to partly endorse the claim of Hulwing, I'm not sure if that's pronounced right either, that in the view of Montesquieu, as well as he seems to think of Locke, both the Christian, I'm quoting now, both the Christian deity and the law of nature were expendable as methods of condemning evil, end quote. Now, this is just false in the case of John Locke, because in the case of John Locke, the law of nature was a reflection of the will of the Christian deity, and he saw the natural law as that which identifies right and wrong. So how could evil be condemned, given such a view, if we throw away the very thing that is supposed to identify that which is evil and that which is not? 
But let's, let's, we've dealt with Locke. Let's stay with Montesquieu. In support of this claim that Montesquieu viewed the, the law of nature as expendable and that it didn't provide the foundation for the kind of moral judgments upon which civil laws should rest, Michael Zuckert says that according to Montesquieu, and I quote, the law of nature is not normative in its own terms, although it may have some normative implications, end quote. And he doesn't support this by quoting this claim out of Montesquieu. Instead, he just lists a reference for the reader to investigate for himself, namely Book 26, Chapters 3 to 5 of Montesquieu's major work. Now, anytime someone makes a claim that looks like it might be a bit contentious, and they don't quote their source, they just list a footnote, you better read, (laughs) check the footnote and check the original source. It's highly doubtful that this is what Montesquieu meant in those chapters, having checked them out for myself. They are essentially chapters dealing with scenarios where there is or there appears to be a conflict between between what we would ordinarily take to be a duty according to the law of nature and the appropriate civil law to establish. In chapters 3 and 4, he lists a number of cases in which he thinks that civil laws were passed that were contrary to the law of nature, but he says that this means that those laws were unjust. Now, if this tells us anything about the relationship between civil and natural law in Montesquieu, it very strongly suggests that he believes that natural law is normative for civil law, contrary to what Zuckert claimed. So that if a civil law disagrees with the law of nature, then the civil law isn't right. It's unjust and we need to change it. In fact, at the end of chapter 4, after considering one such case that he thought was particularly unjust, Montesquieu declared, and I quote, how iniquitous, that means sinful, how iniquitous the law which to preserve a purity of morals overturns nature, the origin, the source of all morality. End quote. It's possible, because he listed chapters 3 to 5 as references, it's possible that Zuckert was thinking primarily of chapter 5 of Montesquieu's work. Now that chapter is called Cases in which we may judge by the principles of the civil law in limiting the principles of the law of nature. If you didn't know what the book was about, and if you didn't read the chapter, you just read the title, you might be forgiven for thinking that it dealt with the practice of opposing the law of nature with the civil law as a good thing. But given that it immediately follows Montesquieu's claim that any law that overturns the law of nature is iniquitous, um, that's a pretty unlikely interpretation. In this chapter, Montesquieu cites only one law, And this is the law, as Montesquieu recites it. He says, An Athenian law obliged children to provide for their fathers when fallen into poverty. It accepted those who were born of a courtesan, that is, a prostitute, those who were, sorry, those whose chastity had been infamously prostituted by their father, and those to whom he had not given any means of gaining a livelihood. So basically, he's talking about bastard children who were born of prostitutes to their natural fathers. Montesquieu himself considered that a child had a natural duty to provide for his father if needed, and therefore he considered that this law provided an exception to this natural duty. This this civil law provided an exception to the natural duty. But whether he thought that this was so because the law of nature was not binding in the three sets of circumstances outlined in, outlined by this law is by no means clear. This is how Montesquieu evaluated the law, and I quote, 
the civil law that is. And I quote, The law considered that in the first case, the father being uncertain, he had rendered the natural obligation precarious. That in the second, he had sullied the life he had given and done the greatest injury he could to his children in depriving them of their reputation. That in the third, he had rendered insupportable a life which had no means of subsistence. The law suspended the natural obligation of children because the father had violated his. It looked upon the father and the son as no more than two citizens and determined in respect to them only from civil and political views ever considering that a good republic ought to have a particular regard to manners. I am apt to think that Solon's law, that's how he refers to the law, was a wise regulation in the first two cases, whether that in which nature has left the son in ignorance with with regard to his father, or that in which she even seems to ordain that she is nature, he should not own him, but it cannot be approved with respect to the third, where the father had all had only violated a civil institution. Okay, let me explain. Notice that Montesquieu here accepts that there are cases where people need not meet what would otherwise be their natural obligation. But this is only the case where others have failed to meet their natural obligations to them. While this could be construed to mean that the law of nature is not normative, that's not the most obvious interpretation of this approach. For example, a believer in normative natural law would say that we have a natural obligation not to kill one another, but it doesn't follow that we should not execute a murderer who has violated his natural duty. In other words, what would normally be considered natural evils become required in response to natural evils. This doesn't mean that we don't believe that natural law isn't normative. We just believe that there are exceptions to certain natural laws in certain circumstances and that this itself is perfectly natural. Montesquieu's work doesn't deal much with what natural law is or whence it arises, but he does begin his work by spelling this out, laying the foundation for every reference that he he later makes to the law of nature. He appeals to the law of nature later, as entailing moral requirements, but at the very outset, he explains that all requirements of the law of nature come from the author of the law of nature, God. He says, and I quote, Laws, in their most general signification, are the necessary relations arising from the nature of things. In this sense, all beings have their laws. The deity, his laws. The material world, its laws. The intelligence superior to man, their laws. The beasts, their laws, and man, his laws. They who assert that a blind fatality produced the various effects that we behold in this world talk very absurdly. For how can anything be more unreasonable than to pretend that a blind fatality could be productive of intelligent beings? There is then a primitive reason and laws are the relations subsisting between it and different beings, and the relations of these to one another. God is related to the universe as creator and preserver. The laws by which he created all things are those by which he preserves them. He acts according to these rules because he knows them. He knows them because he made them, and he made them because they are relative to his wisdom and power. 
Since we observe that the world, though formed by the motion of, of matter and void of understanding, subsists through so long a succession of ages, its motions must certainly be directed by invariable laws, and could we imagine another world, it must also have constant rules, or it would inevitably perish. Thus, the creation which seems an arbitrary act supposeth laws as invariable as those of the fatality of the atheists. It would be absurd to say that the Creator might govern the world without those rules, since without them it could not subsist. These rules are a fixed and invariable relation. In bodies moved, the motion is received, increased, diminished, lost, according to the relations of the quantity of matter and velocity. Each diversity is uniformity. Each change is constancy. Particular intelligent beings may have laws of their own making, but they have some likewise which they never made. Before there were intelligent beings, they were possible. They had therefore possible relations, and consequently possible laws. Before laws were made, there were relations of possible justice. To say that there is nothing just or unjust but what is commanded or forbidden by positive laws is the same as saying that before the, descri- before the describing of a circle, all the radii were not equal. His last words, that's the end of a very lengthy quote, His last words are especially worthy of note. To suppose that justice and injustice did not exist until people came along and made laws determining what is just and what is unjust is is just as absurd, he says, as saying that prior to geometrical principles being formulated, they were not binding, and a circle could have radii of all kinds of different lengths. Now, the clear implication of this is that human lawmaking is not meant to create standards of justice. Rather, it is meant to conform to them. Human beings have some laws that they create, but there are basic laws that no human or human society created. We see here a comment like that in Grotius, who I'll look at later, implying that God cannot change the law of nature. Montesquieu says that God cannot govern the world without the laws of nature that we now have, not because they never depended on God for their existence, but because without them, Without constant laws, the world could not continue to exist at all, so it couldn't be governed. You can't govern what ain't there. Montesquieu later speaks of natural law, not just in terms of the law of science, sorry, laws of science, but more broadly as the laws of God governing everything in creation, including human conduct. Unlike John Locke, he was more willing to speak of man's failing to live up to those laws, not simply because of a lack of reason or intelligence, but to a direct transgression of God's law. He says, and I quote, man as a physical being, it's nice to know he was a physicalist too, is, like other bodies, governed by invariable laws. As an intelligent being, he incessantly transgresses the laws established by God and changes those of his own instituting. He is left to his private direction, though a limited being and subject, like all finite intelligences, to ignorances and error, even his imperfect knowledge he loseth, and as a sensible creature he is hurried away by a thousand impetuous passions. Such a being might every instant forget his creator. God has therefore reminded him 
of his duty by the laws of religion. Such a being is liable every moment to forget himself. Philosophy has provided against this by the laws of morality. Formed to live in society, he might forget his fellow creatures. Legislators have, therefore, by political and civil laws, confined him to his duty. Now, while Montesquieu ostensibly did not set out to write about theology, but jurisprudence, his concern was, his concern was in legal scholarship, not theology, not even that much in philosophy, well, legal philosophy. Hence, his comments about the metaphysics of natural law are quite sparse. But on those rare occasions when he turned directly to the subject, we see some very familiar themes appearing, and I quote, Antecedent to the above-mentioned laws are those of nature, so-called because they derive their force entirely from our frame and existence. In order to have in order to have a perfect knowledge of these laws, we must consider man before the establishment of society. The laws received in such a state would be those of nature. The law which impressing on our minds the idea of a creator inclines us toward him is the first in importance, though not in order, of natural laws. The view expressed in Scripture in theologian John Calvin, as well as in John Locke, and here again in Montesquieu, is that the most important of natural laws is that which inclines us to God our Creator. He created laws of nature, which should be reflected in civil laws, and he also created religion to remind us explicitly of our duty to worship God. In Montesquieu, then, there is just no hope of finding a godless theory of natural law. Now that's the pattern that you find in the history of classical liberalism. There is one fly in the ointment, one fly in particular in the ointment because of some of the statements that he made, and that's Hugo Grotius. Now I don't really think Hugo Grotius is a problem, but on the face of it, sometimes he appears to be a problem. Everything that we've seen so far suggests that in classical liberalism the view of natural law really was religious, where natural law is divine law in some basic sense, and it is not generated by or created by or based on reason. What becomes clear before very long at all when surveying the evidence is that the pattern of seeing the law of nature as a concept with theological groundings is virtually uniform. But Hugo Grotius is sometimes appealed to as an exception. Now, like other natural law theorists of his time, he claimed that natural law is generally apprehended by human beings, that it aligns with the dictate of right reason and so on. But he also said some things which have led many to say that he did not believe that natural law was in any sense dependent on God for its content. That might make him an attractive figure for secular admirers, you know, godless, unbelieving admirers of the classical liberal tradition. Stephen Ford is representative of this understanding of Grotius, saying that in Grotius' view, and I quote, natural law does not require a legislating will or a divine enforcer to be law, end quote. Grotius rejected the view that moral law was a mere convention. This is me talking now, not Stephen Ford. Grotius rejected the view 
that moral law was a mere convention because, and I quote, the very nature of man, he said, is the mother of the law of nature, end quote. So far from being dependent on God, some might find in Grotius the view that God is literally powerless over the law of nature when he says, and I quote, now the law of nature is so unalterable that it cannot be changed even by God himself, end quote. To further reassure many of his interpreters that this law of nature really is not rooted in God in some way, he says, and I quote, what we are saying would have a degree of validity even if we should concede that there is no God, end quote. Wow, how could it be clearer? So some people will hear those three quotes or half quotes or you know those, those three very short statements and say, well, there you have it. You know, we've found natural law in the classical liberal tradition that doesn't need God. Thank you. We'll leave now. We won't look any further. Well, this understanding of Grotius really does him an injustice and it betrays a hasty reading of what he actually said. In fact, Grotius has been taken way out of context. Observe that he clearly teaches that the law of nature is dependent on God for its content. And I quote, Herein, then, is another source of law besides the source in nature, that is, the free will of God, to, beyond, to which beyond all cavil our reason tells us we must render obedience. But the law of nature, of which we have spoken, comprising alike that which relates to the social life of man, and that which is so-called in a larger sense, proceeding as it does from the essential traits implanted in man, can nevertheless be rightly attributed to God because of his having willed that such traits exist in us. End quote. So in saying that we find another source of the law in the free will of God, Grotius here adds a footnote to Marcus Aurelius, saying, and I quote, he who commits injustice is guilty of impiety. End quote. Now impiety is like sin or unholiness or wickedness, indicating that a violation of standards of justice revealed in the law of nature constitutes a sin, a violation of the will of God. And, quoting again, Natural law is the dictate of right reason, showing the moral turpitude or moral necessity of any act from its agreement or disagreement with a rational nature, and consequently that such an act is either forbidden or commanded by God, the author of nature. Okay. So any transgression of the law of nature, you know, to become aware that anything is a transgression of the law of nature is to become aware that it is forbidden by God, the author of nature. Notice the order in which Grotius places the reference to the rational nature and the command of God. If something is not in accordance with the rational nature, then that shows that the act is forbidden by God. And if something is required by a rational nature, then that shows that it is commanded by God. The will of God, then, is the cause of the way that things are and whether or not an act accords with a rational nature. The fact that generates natural laws of morality is not just that things are the way they are. It's the fact that God intended them to be the way they are. To violate the natural law is to violate God's will. And so for Grotius, it may well be the case that a person can deny the existence of God while still agreeing that through the use of his mind he can discover 
what is right and wrong. That's an epistemological issue. That's an issue of how we can know stuff. That doesn't address what natural law is and why it exists. Grotius' answer to the question of why it is that nature is such that some things are right and others wrong is that God has willed for this to be so. In Grotius, God created the world in such a way that to do something is good, and then he commands that we do it. The fact that Grotius separates natural law from God's positive commands does not mean his theory of natural law does not depend on theological assumptions, or even that natural law is not the moral decree of God. On the contrary, when he is distinguishing law in the sense of God's direct commands from the law of nature, he says that, and I quote, What volitional divine law is, we may well understand from the meaning of the words. It is, of course, that law which has its origin in the divine will. End quote. As law that arises from positive commands which, commands which express God's will, Grotius says that this type of law, and I quote, may be distinguished from the law of nature, which, as we have said, may also be called divine. End quote. Now, to explain what he means by, as we have said, Grotius includes a cross-reference to his statements in Prolegomena 12, which I quoted earlier, where he says that the law of nature is attributed to God because the nature of things and people determining what is what is right and wrong is willed by God in the first place. Charles Edwards notes that by leaving these theological claims out of the picture in Grotius's thought, we do so, and I quote, at the peril of misinterpreting the whole theory of Grotius. The point is clear enough already against those who would claim Grotius as a supporter for a purely irreligious concept of natural law, but to further drive the nail into the coffin, he adds a footnote in the Prolegomena at this point to the 4th century church father, that is, sorry, Grotius adds a footnote to the 4th century church father, St. Chrysostom, someone that Grotius frequently draws on, and, he, and the quote is this, When I say nature, I mean God because God is the author of nature, end quote. Now this fully explains why Grotius said that God cannot change the content of natural law, because natural law reflects the intent of God the Creator when he made things as they are. Changing natural law would be tantamount to going back in time and creating a different universe. In other words, even granting that God could have acted in such a way so that natural law would have been different from what it is now, Given that God has acted in the way that God acted and God created this world, it cannot be any different from what it is now. Reflecting on Hugo Grotius and also William of Ockham, David Clark notes that, quote, it is not insignificant, nor is it superfluous to the Christian conscience, that God requires conformity to right reasons dictate when this obligation could be recognized without faith, end quote. So what we have is a system of ethics with a theological grounding for its truth, however that grounding may or may not subtly differ, you know, depending on, on the scholar that you're reading, but an epistemology, that is a theory of knowledge, such that our moral duty can be understood and known to some degree by those who reject the truth of its theological grounding. So, in short, even unbelievers know right from wrong. Grotius did not say, that if there is no God, there would still be a natural law to appeal to for moral claims. Michael Crow is, in my view, absolutely correct when he 
observes the attempts to secularize Grotius and to take God out of his theory, and he notes that, and I quote, perhaps history has accorded more importance to Grotius' hypothesis of God's non-existence than he did himself, end quote. Now, those are the classical liberal theorists that I have appealed to in order to show you what the classical liberal theory of natural law is like. Very theological. You take God away, you take the whole theory of natural law and the basis of ethics and the basis of civil law away. But there is one more example that should be mentioned before I turn away from this rather brief historical survey. David Hume said that he believed in natural law, which accorded with principles of justice, but David Hume didn't believe in God. He wasn't a theist. The reason that I have not mentioned him so far is that anyone who has seen what David Hume said about natural law will already know that just because he called it natural law doesn't mean it's the same thing that other philosophers were talking about when they used that term. Hume considered that there are three basic so-called laws of nature. Quote, that of the stability of position, of its transference by consent, and of the performance of promises. Tis on the strict observance of these three laws that the peace and security of human society entirely depend. End quote. Now that language might suggest a concept of natural law, albeit a high, highly abbreviated, you know, a very shortened concept, because just three rules, that's not much. But to draw that conclusion is, is a bit hasty. And any broader survey of how Hume talked about natural law will show that his natural law is not natural law as we know it. He says, and I quote, "'Tis reasonable for those philosophers who assert justice to be a natural virtue and antecedent to human conventions to resolve all civil allegiance into the obligation of a promise and assert that tis our own consent alone which binds us to any submission to magistracy. For as all government is plainly an invention of men, and the origin of most governments is known in history, tis necessary to mount higher in order to find the source of our political duties, if we would assert them to have any natural obligation of morality. These philosophers, therefore, and notice he's not speaking favorably of them, he's almost deriding them, these philosophers, therefore, quickly observe that society is as antient. That's probably a funny way of spelling ancient. Society is as ancient as the human species, and those three fundamental laws of nature as ancient as society, so that taking advantage of the antiquity and obscure origin of these laws, they first deny them to be artificial and voluntary inventions of men, and then seek to engraft on them those other duties which are more plainly artificial. But being once undeceived in this particular, and having found that natural as well as civil justice derives its origin from human conventions, we shall quickly perceive how fruitless it is to resolve the one into the other, and seek in the laws of nature a stronger foundation for our political duties than interest and human conventions. So he's basically admitting that what he calls natural law is not really natural, it's just made up by people. You know, human conventions, we just came up with these ideas and called them natural. The supposition of a basic natural law that it ought to underlie 
the moral precepts at which we arrive is, Hume claims, a mere invention to make our own moral rules and systems of government seem more authoritative, since they are supposedly based on it. Hume says on countless occasions in one way or another that, quote, the rules of justice are established by the artifice of men, end quote. He claims as though it is settled that, quote, men invented the three fundamental laws of nature when they observed the necessity of society to their mutual subsistence, end quote. At one point, he cries out against a particular practice. It doesn't matter what that practice was for now. On the grounds that it is, quote, a kind of superstitious practice in civil laws and in the laws of nature, end quote, suggesting that in fact laws of nature can in principle be wrong. The point could be pressed, but it is in my view so obvious that it does not need to be. Hume, Hume did not have a secular version of what we think of as natural law. He called his laws natural, but that's where the similarity between his view and the natural law of Locke, Grotius, or Sidney ends. I think I've demonstrated some things historically here, but there are some things that I can't demonstrate. What I have presented here is pretty mundane, and I think on a historical level pretty hard to avoid. Those who would revise classical liberalism to find in it a natural law theory purged of theological underpinnings, I believe, have succumbed to the temptation to see history, to see the Enlightenment in particular, as part of a progression that results in, well, me. We look through history and we see it progressing until finally it gets good enough to reach our views. As though the views that I hold now are the pinnacle to which Enlightenment philosophy was leading all along. Now the claim that I've responded to although I think the historical claim is a dubious one, is not really the fundamental question. The claim is fairly easily debunked, and I think I've debunked it, but it's not the most important question. The more fundamental question is whether or not natural rights, natural moral facts, could exist if God did not. Now, modern liberals might wish to reject the historic liberal view of natural law as something with divine origins, and to press on into the future with a better, more enlightened view of natural law, or reject natural law altogether, as many do. Now, I don't think they would be correct to reinvent natural law in this way. I don't think they'd be very successful. But they should reject historical natural law rather than engage in this kind of revisionism. You know, pretending that history really agrees with them all along. They should just have the, the backbone to man up and say, look, these guys were wrong. They were all wrong. I'm right. If you think you're right, then go ahead and say so. But don't tell lies about people who are now dead and can't correct you. Now, my own political outlook is a classical liberal one. Fairly limited government that exists to protect natural human rights and to uphold only as much as the law of nature dictates and no more. Your big spending projects in the arts, your big budget investments in science and technology, the use of state power to take money for sporting events or national of national importance, the removal of people's rights to seek compensation from those who injure them or not allowing freedom of association for certain sectors of society, as in the case of New Zealand where I now live. All of these things either involve the government overstepping its role as the upholders of the principle of natural law, or else they involve the government actually refusing to uphold those principles. I know that, ironically, 
plenty of modern classical liberal wannabes who sometimes can't tell the difference between their view, between sorry, between classical liberalism and libertarianism, see their overall outlook on life as thoroughly secular, sometimes even outspokenly and obnoxiously so. The reality is that the bedrock principles on which this on which this outlook has historically rested, and for what is it's worth, the best foundation for an outlook like this is one that only really exists if a certain type of monotheism happens to be true. I'm aware that we're about to cross the one hour mark. This has been a long episode. Um, I'm never really sure to apologize about, about that because I know some like them long and some don't. I'm also aware that it's a very dry episode. You know, it's historical data being presented to you. I happen to think it's important and interesting, but then I'm kind of a geek for something. So if you didn't find it all that interesting, I'm sorry. Just wait until next time or go back and listen to an older episode. But that's what you get this time around and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) So until next time, this is your host, Glenn People, signing off. Please join me again, I was going to say, for another riveting episode. But if you found this one a bit dry, that might not hold much promise for you. So please join me again for at least another episode of... Shut up to my little friend!